The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Two Millennials One Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Gable, and this week I am joined again by Sean Mainz. It's good to be here. He's back, folks. And today we're talking about vampires. I want to suck your blood. Before we get started, as usual, I'd like to encourage you all to subscribe, share, post this wherever you can, get this out here. We work hard to make this every week, and you can do us a solid by sharing it with at least one other human. Or undead, blood-sucking creature. We're available on all major podcasting apps. As I previously stated, we are talking about vampires. My co-host has spent the week researching. He has books open on our table regarding vampires. Well, I wanted to talk about this topic. It was something, I guess, kind of boils under the surface in the subconscious realms. I didn't realize how much I already knew about vampires when I started my very short but thorough research on the topic. But there is so much to it. Like, we can talk about world history. We can talk about religion, mythology. Psychology, mental disorders, cinema, literature. I read the Wikipedia for this, and it dances all over the place. You can talk about any facet of this. It is endless. They permeate our culture and our society Real or not, they are there and a real part of who we are as a culture. And that is fascinating to me. And I know there's not going to be a lot of people listening to this that are like, ooh, what's a vampire? You know what it is. We're probably not going to tell you too much you didn't already know. That was interesting to me to realize just kind of how much I had already picked up, how many movies I had already seen, books I had heard of. I'll admit I haven't read a lot of vampire books, but there is one saga that I have read. I believe you have read that as well. I have. And it's just everywhere. Pop culture is not a subculture thing. It is right there under the surface. You're absolutely right. And when you're saying it's such a part of our culture, it's not even just a part of our culture. It's a part of almost every civilization, every group of people, Mesopotamians, the Hebrews, the Greeks, the Romans, all of these societies and cultures have had some sort of vampire-like entity in their folklore or in their consciousness. That is, again, a remarkable thing when we talk about, you know, collective knowledge and things like that as a sociological term, that these creatures or this idea spans worldwide and across time through different iterations, but they're there in some form or another and identifiable in some form or another. And they go through different understandings per period, different understanding for what the broader culture is, their influences based on religion. I thought it was interesting what Christianity did with vampires in the Middle ages and then recently how some of the modern takes on vampires have gone back to earlier takes on vampires so uh, just a lot to be able to talk about in this episode i guess we'll just start it here for people that aren't truly aware of what the definition of a vampire is a vampire is simply a being that subsists by feeding on the quote vital forces of the living and typically as most people know that is by the consumption of blood yes it is and different forms of even how they would access that blood in people the most recent form is the biting 
of the neck. And then their earlier forms where they would bite over the heart because there was some sense that not only did they suck your blood, but they would also steal your soul. And so the emotions and all that being connected with the heart. Those get at some features of vampires. And these obviously, as he pointed out, they're going to cycle and they're going to go up and down and be different through different generations or different groups of people. But there are some common things that vampires have, such as this need for other people's aura or blood or life force. Also things like being soulless. There's a lot of vampire legends about they don't have souls and that's why they need this lifeblood of other beings. What are some other vampire traits that you've encountered? I mean, there's the recent ones like they can't see their reflection in a mirror and they hate garlic and they don't like sunlight. In terms of the the warding off or the different aspects of like what vampires don't like, you mentioned garlic, but also there is a belief about vampires that they have some kind of tidy compunction that you can avoid a vampire or if you are being chased by a vampire, if you throw seed onto the ground, they will be forced to pick all of those up before they can proceed. Yeah, I actually read about this and that was a pervasive legend or idea about vampires. In fact, to ward off vampires in other societies and cultures, when they buried someone, they would scatter the grave with seeds. So the vampire would be so taken by all these seeds and their desire to count them like they had OCD or something. I, I thought that was a really interesting legend or folklore about vampires. That's not one that I believe made its way up into our current Twilight vampire, but I got a kick out of reading that. Just like, let's sprinkle these rye seeds around the grave and eh, they'll keep the vampires busy. Yeah. <laughs> I had to chuckle at that one too. With that same thing, in order to find a vampire, you could do a similar thing. One of the thoughts originally about vampires were that they were a sort of undead, that they would rise up from the graves and from there they could go on and seek their victims. And so if you were hunting vampires, you were trying to find out if there was an outbreak or an epidemic of vampirism, you could sprinkle cemeteries with ash or seed or salt and the grave then that had the footprint around it in the morning would be the grave of the vampire and then you could unearth the grave and stake the vampire in the heart yeah there's a lot of ways that they quote-unquote detected vampires that were already buried i read something about this was a weird one but take a virgin boy on a virgin horse and release it into the cemetery and whatever grave that the horse balked at was the one with the vampire mm-hmm. yeah and I, a black black or a white horse. Absolutely, depending on what uh, part of the world you were from dictated the color of horse. And they got pretty savage. I mean, they are unearthing bodies. And then that whole process alone kind of fed into what we think about vampires as far as like they dig up a body and it looks like the human hasn't decayed at all. So therefore they must be something undead or just a straight up vampire. And there's all kinds of physical things that happen when a body decomposes that lends itself to this belief in vampires such as like when your body starts to decay you bloat and uh, your blood starts to ooze out of your mouth so they would dig up these graves of supposed vampires and there'd be blood all over their face and like boom yes we found one and then they'd stake it yeah and my reading I found this this idea about catalepsy which is a temporary state of suspended animation in which case it looks like a person is dead or just premature burial in times of plague or disease 
when they're attempting to stop the spread of a disease, they would bury people who had died, but not always knowing that they were for sure dead. And so when you're unearthing graves and you find that the corpse had, you know, its fingernails ripped up or its clothes, you know, they were buried in shrouds or whatever, that their shrouds would be torn, that these people have been buried alive without the grave digger realizing or the doctors realizing that. And and so you had buried a live person and before they could then suffocate, they attempted to escape their tomb. And that in and of itself is a really frightening thought. But in that case, if you've uh, violated this grave and you find this corpse there that had loosed itself and had torn and tried to dig itself out, you have some substantial evidence there. But again, they didn't know that they had buried a live person. Definitely. And that just feeds into this myth of vampires. And if you dig one of those up, what other proof do you need? There's one right in front of you. Aside from burying people alive, when you think about what happens when you die, they would open up these graves and the fingernails would have grown and the teeth would be longer and they're not growing. It's just what happens when your body dies. You lose fluids and your fingernails skin retracts and your gums retract and they'd open these caskets up or these coffins and they'd see these disturbing images of like, oh man, that person's still growing their nails and their hair and their teeth. It would be concerning. And if you look to see where these like vampire hysteria things happen typically, they're usually in colder climates and if you bury a body in a cold climate, that decay slowly Lows down. So you pop up a coffin that you buried two months ago and that body's looking pretty fresh. It's because it's been preserved. But they weren't thinking in those terms. They were thinking, this is an undead creature. Get out your aspen steak and let's drill it in that face or the heart or wherever that culture believed. Did you read about why an aspen steak? I did. And I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. I, I guess the belief is that Christ was crucified using aspen wood. Yes. So therefore, the most holy wood that you could kill this undead being with would be aspen makes me want to plant some aspen trees in my yard absolutely <laughs> just just in case yeah it couldn't hurt yeah so early visions of the vampire weren't the current vision so i think currently we have this very suave smooth character as a vampire but early on they were almost like if i wanted to compare more like a zombie that they were undead and then had this thirst for blood they would have you know dug themselves out of their grave and not a coffin because we're not generally talking about wealthy people or really just people didn't bury themselves in coffins very often that coffin idea is separated out as a more modern view of vampires but these were you know uh, dark figures a lot of times messy and gross looking something to be avoided and easily avoided although in some ancient stories they did make themselves a part of society as opposed to the grave dwelling nasty version and so the vampires in can blend in with society that was a big thing with the twilight saga was they were living in the northwest because it was cloudy they could avoid sunlight not because I hated it, but apparently because it was shiny. That was the worst part of that book, by the way. Spoiler alert. When they went out to the woods, Edward and mm -hmm. Bella... And that was the big reveal. I almost quit reading. Oh, I agree. Are you referring to the quote where he's like, say it out loud. And she's like, vampire. And he's glittering in the sun. Yes. Yes, I agree. That was trash. That was terrible. If I ever point out why that book is no good, I use that scene, actually, <laughs> or that part of the book. 
So that was an interesting take on the vampire. But they picked up on the blending in with society. That's something that they've taken in the in the recent versions of that. Kind of in the 1800s. That's when the big kick of the modern vampire got started. Early in the 1800s, there was a short story. There were some short stories, some plays. But the big one was Bram Stoker's Dracula. 1897 publication. That Dracula took over the pop culture understanding of what a vampire is. Definitely. And that's like you said, that's when vampires and Dracula as a whole got smooth and suave and blended in with society, which if you think about it, that's a more terrifying version of a vampire. It's someone you're interacting with. It's someone you may not know is a vampire and wants to drink your blood. That seems more psychologically terrifying and probably why it's been able to capture our imagination. And this has been going on for a hundred years now. In fact, speaking of Bram Stoker's Dracula, that Dracula is the subject of more films only second to Sherlock Holmes. That is such a popular character from that moment in 1897 up through now that it's the second most portrayed character in film right now. That's remarkable. And again, a testament to the staying power of the vampire. It plays on real fears, things that we can identify with, and that's a testament to that aspect of these myths and stories. Background of Dracula and that name, I find this remarkably interesting. I wish there was a little bit more intentional connection between Stoker's Dracula and the historic Dracula. There was a prince in Romania, in Transylvania actually, named Vlad Dracula, the son of a devil or a dragon in translation. And this dude was intense. No doubt. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But... Vlad Dracula, or as he became known, Vlad the Impaler, is one of those villainous characters of history that is actually a Romanian state hero to this day. So a little context for the real figure of Vlad Dracula, but there isn't too much connection. People haven't been able to relate that too closely to Stoker's version of Dracula, but he was a prince in a small province named Wallachia, which was at the border border of where Romania is today in southeastern Europe and the Ottoman Empire. As the Ottomans were pushing into Europe, the Ottoman Turks, it was Vlad the Impaler that in the 1400s, we're talking middle 1400s, actually blocked the Muslim advance further into Europe at that time. He would impale people, he would nail turbans to people's heads, leave their corpses on pikes outside of castles as warnings to more Turks, and that was about as far as the Turks made it in that particular invasion. I don't want to get too much into the world history. No, but it's fair because there is a historical figure floating out there with the name Dracula, and if you don't understand the context, you're going to create things of like, oh, that dude probably drank blood and couldn't see himself in a mirror and you fantasize this thing and you're right it's just it's mostly a name connection as well as a location the idea of our dracula transylvania ooh, creepy mountainous region over in europe outside of those two things you're exactly right not a whole lot of overlap but it's good for historical context let's talk about something lighter because i'm frightened at the moment (laughs) let's talk about pop culture references beyond so 1897 we have the book 
Dracula. Have you read it? I have not, but researching this makes me want to read it. I guess it's written through a series of letters and articles, like newspaper articles. It sounds relatively interesting. I know I'm going to open it up and be like, oh, old English, and not get through it, but I'm intrigued. Have you read it? I've only read portions of it, and I think I did it when I was, tried to read it when I was a teenager, and so it was dense and like, like, get to the story, man, you know, like, so I think I gave up on it when I was a teenager. And that's the thing, as I was doing this reading, I was like, man, I want to watch that movie. I want to watch, I want to read that book. You know, it's one of those books you should read just because some books you should read. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I may Amazon, I may buy it. It's probably free at this point since 1897. That should be free to everybody. Probably get that on your nook for free. (laughs) Definitely. If you're still using a nook, look that up for us. Well, I think it was actually written on a nook. (laughs) (laughs) beyond that the movie came out which is dracula with bella lugosi that's the one yeah 1931 and from that he becomes the visual image that we have the pale skin the dark hair living in a coffin also because stoker had dracula as going to london to fit in to feast on the blood of londoners the bella lugosi dracula that character was in london in the upper echelons of society. And so you get this more elite dress, the suit, the opera coat with the high collar. That becomes the image that we have and that you'll see kids dress as on Halloween. That's the image that comes out of that from, again, 1931. And and there was a play just before that, and some of that was in that play as well. Sure, and you can contrast that. And I think most people are aware of this, too. This wasn't the first portrayal of Dracula. In 1922, there's a film called Nosferatu, mm. which was actually the second take on Bram Stoker's Dracula. And the people that made that film, they changed the name of Vampire to Nosferatu. They didn't take the name Count Dracula, and that is a vivid difference. That is a creepy-looking human playing the role of this vampire, not suave, not upper echelon of humanity, and that's the perfect contrast of what you were saying before, of this like dirty, grave-dwelling, nasty vampire versus the Count, the Count Dracula, the ladies' man that likes to suck blood and kill people. Yeah, even that, the sucking of the blood, had a, a sexual connotation to it. The wrapping of the cape around the woman and bending her backward, like it was intentionally done to make these vampires almost not scary but scary in a different way. <laughs> scary with a lure, and it interests you, it terrifies you, but it's intriguing. I mean, that has followed all the way up through Twilight, and that's the whole deal with Twilight, is that's, mm-hmm. a, that's an attractive vampire family. They're all gorgeous and beautiful, and they draw you in. Yeah. Some other versions, more recently, 1994, Interview with a Vampire. With Tom Cruise, right? Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. Yeah. Emilio Estevez. Nobody knows who that is. Mighty Ducks, right? I know. I was going to say, he's good with Mighty Ducks. Get with it, millennials. That movie, every article, every reading that I did, that movie would pop up. Kirsten Dunst is in there as a plays a 12-year-old vampire who is very old. And in that movie, actually, I think it's Emilio Estevez's character, is interviewing a vampire. And so the vampire is telling a story, like any criminal or terrorist or whoever is telling their story. And so he's interviewing this vampire. And so it jumps back into periods of time because vampires are immortal. They don't die. We talk about ways to kill them, staking them in the heart, cut it off their head. There's, there's ways to do it. But that movie, and again, you're talking about Brad Pitt 
and Tom Cruise and all these handsome leading men type of characters playing vampires, that is a continuation of this story as well. There's another, I actually have read a book and I had no idea what it was when I was getting into it. It's called The Historian. I read it for all the wrong reasons, but I would highly recommend it. I actually lent it out to a student and it was stolen, stolen from her backpack. She probably listens to this. She'll know who she is. But the historian is a its a modern tale of someone who is looking for her lost father, but is embroiled in this layer upon layer upon layer of vampire mythology. And the book, it does a wonderful job of, of layering what is currently happening with the father's life with historical accounts of vampires as well. It's a fiction book and it travels all across Europe. But the historian, that'd be another book I'd highly recommend that book especially if you're into vampires and just good books so vampires sexy creatures from 1897 on we've just made these things glorious and that has created a weird phenomenon amongst a certain segment of the population who for whatever reason believe they are vampires and they engage in some questionable practices are you aware of this i've not heard of this in particular but i have heard of people who through history have thought themselves vampires definitely and it's no different than historically uh, there are people that like to consume blood and they believe the blood gives them force or power or happiness or eternal life or whatever the case may be and there are some interesting documentaries on youtube if you're interested of how these people go about acquiring blood usually they befriend donors who through variety of means allow them to extract the blood from their body and they consume it and it's kind of gross but apparently it does something for these people and they claim that their hair is lush and gorgeous and their skin is full and it's weird yeah there's a character from history she was a princess in hungary named elizabeth bathory and she violently tortured her servants and would even bathe in their blood it was apparently legend at the time but they found nothing to say that those weren't true because in her journal that was in the trial notes she claimed more than 600 victims of her torture and then bathing in their blood also as like a skin renewal or beauty product type of thing it's fascinating that There's still people that do that, but luckily they're not torturing people. And the good news about a vampire apocalypse type of thing, like, well, why, if vampires were real, why haven't they taken over the world? You know, they don't need to kill people to get blood. Freakonomics, the authors of Freakonomics did a podcast on the economics of vampires, and they talked about opening blood banks like coffee shops where vampires could just go and get their peppermint mocha blood yeah absolutely in this day and age i feel like vampires should be more proper with their blood acquisition yeah there's no reason to be stealing it vampires okay i know you're listening look you just need to pay somebody enough and they'll do it okay free market yeah free market absolutely yeah. free market vampires you can come out of hiding we'd only be afraid of you you probably have some things to offer us and we can offer you too don't treat us like cattle I think that's where we get it wrong. Speaking of that, you brought up Freakonomics, and that reminded me, in, I believe, 2006, a philosopher, or maybe a mathematician, who knows, those aren't that far apart, proved... (laughs) According to you. Proved that 
vampires cannot exist. He set up a thought experiment beginning in the year 1600 and said if there was one vampire in 1600 and he acquired blood once per month from a different source and then turned that person into a vampire because that's part of the lore as well. If you get bit, you become one. That that would have taken over the entire world and we'd all be vampires by now. That only proves that you don't become a vampire by being bit by a vampire. It doesn't disprove the existence of vampires. I like that argument. Very true. And so how then do you become a vampire? Because everybody thinks, oh, you get bit and then you are a vampire. Early thoughts, and these again, spanning the world, Russia, Romania, China, and West Africa, all had a belief that if you committed suicide, you would become a vampire. The view, again at the time, was there wasn't anything more antisocial than committing suicide and that the antisocial behaviors of the vampire were connected. So that was the view, again, from those different cultures. That's a fair point, though. I mean, if you think about it, if you have to be bit to become a vampire, who is Vampire 1? How did that get started? And, I mean, you can dive into all kinds of religious... He has his hands up. What do we got? There was a terrible movie, Wes Craven's Dracula 2000. Oh. They had a theory that the first vampire... The movie was terrible. The theory was interesting. The, the first vampire was Judas Iscariot. That when he went to hang himself after betraying Jesus, I think in the movie, the noose actually broke and he was cursed to wander the earth, unable to ever forget the sin or the evil that he did. That was a shocking moment. Like, whoa, what? Maybe... Actually, as I thought about it more, I was like, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. Judas Iscariot, that wouldn't make sense. But if you go further back, even in Hebrew, Old Testament stuff, Cain and Abel would be an interesting story. Cain kills Abel, but then he's cursed and sent off, and he's got this mark on him. And some believe that that mark was that he wouldn't be able to die, and so then Cain could be the original vampire. That's intriguing. I like that better than the Judas theory. Biblically, was the Cain story ever resolved outside of him being sent out? Okay, so in Genesis 4... Verse 15, it says, The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It goes on to talk about that he had a wife and he built a city and went on to have a huge family. So I think if you read into that way too much, more than what's really there, that if anyone kill Cain, his punishment would be sevenfold. Well, does that mean he couldn't die? So that was like, wow, what's going on here, you know? But again, just speculation, like, what is that patient zero vampire? Sure. Why do you think the idea of vampires has existed through so many cultures and societies? What about humans in general needs this vampire entity in our folklore, in our, our consciousness? It serves a purpose. And so for every culture, it's going to serve a different purpose. For example, the folklore superstition vampire served a purpose for the Catholic Church as it was growing in the Middle Ages. And what they realized was at the time... They didn't have to fight against the idea of a vampire. That they didn't have to put down the superstition of the church, this is. And that what they could do instead was use the vampire 
as a tool for their own purposes. So instead of like trying to get people to not believe in vampires, what they did instead was they introduced the idea of crosses and holy water and crucifixes as weapons against the vampire so that they could in some ways get more people on their side. So in that sense, the idea of evil beyond ourselves and then having a good beyond ourselves to be able to fight that, it was a powerful tool at the time. And I don't think we're too far beyond that, even in today's skeptical society. As a side note, I don't know how much people really believed in vampires. You know, like, if people look back at us 500 years from now, we've got books on vampires, we've got movies on vampires. They could look at us and say, these people believed in vampires. And I wouldn't say that we do, but it's there. It's a part of our folklore. It's a part of our mythology, and it's widely accepted, not necessarily as truth, but as stories that we all understand and can identify with. And we don't always understand death. It's something that frightens us a lot to think about what happens after we die. Do we just enter a void or is there a heaven or a hell or what happens if your soul is not at rest? Those are big questions that humans struggle with. You know, even religious people struggle with that. Everybody struggles with those questions. And so when you're talking about an undead entity at all. I think it kind of circulates around that central theme of just a fear of death, a fear of the unknown. And vampires are, you know, as much as they are seductive and uh, suave, they're kind of an unknown figure. They're an unknown creature. There's something to be pondered about that fascinates us. It plays on our kind of innate fears things like darkness you know that's a big aspect of vampire lore that they're afraid of the sunlight that they're creatures of the night that they prey on innocent victims that could be another motif here is that we kind of always wonder why bad things happen to good people and here you have a creature designed to be taking you know the life force or the blood from unsuspecting young women in a lot of cases and so kind of an answer to these bigger questions I like that. In a sense, we're not escaping our fears necessarily, but we're transplanting them. We're putting them onto something. True or not, doesn't matter so much, but we can transplant that fear and somehow that may make it better. That may make it easier. All right. Another fantastic, creepy, spooky October episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing us talk about vampires. Sean, you got a song pick of the week for us? Dang it. While he thinks about it, I actually have two. Abby sent hers in, even though she couldn't be here today. Uh, She wants you all to check out a song called Habits of My Heart by a guy named James Young. And if you're going to Google that, James is spelled J-A-Y-M-E-S. And then I'm going to suggest a song called You're Somebody Else by Flora Cash. And that is a chill, laid-back bop. And I recommend you all check her out. So my song pick of the week is Oxford Comma by Vampire Weekend. What a fitting band. A chill sort of indie group. So check them out when you get a chance. Very nice. Thanks for checking us out this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it for you. I hope you tune in next week for another, I would guess, spooky episode as it is October. (laughs) Have a fantastic week. (laughs) 